All right, I want to, we're, uh, um, we just, we finished up Haggai, and I'm going on vacation next week. Now, you can applaud for that. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm going on vacation next week, and so I didn't want to start the next series. I'm, I've been just doing a couple things that I, I wanted to do, and then after, after my vacation, we're going to dive into the book of Ruth, which is just, oh, I love that book. It's a life-changing book, and uh, I encourage you, I encourage you to be reading ahead. Read the book of Ruth. Go through it. See what's going on there, and then we will, we will dive into it together. But today we're going to look at one of my favorite passages. This is James chapter 1, verses 13 to 18. I love this passage because it gives us, such, uh, it gives us an illustration of how things work, how sin works, how temptation works, that is so down to earth, that is so relatable, that it's easy to grasp and, uh, and then to understand how God works, and then how we are supposed to work in, in, in uh, accordance with him. So let me read you James chapter 1, 13 to 18. You can follow along in your Bible, on your phone, whatever, or you can just listen, and it starts here. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by their own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, in the book of James, James chapter one, there, James chapter one, but the whole book is is go, deals over and over with this concept of trials, this concept of difficulties sometimes that happen in our lives. And let me just clue you in on something, because this is something that people sometimes can misconstrue if you listen to certain people on online or whatever. And, and that is this this idea that somehow when a person becomes a Christian, life just gets so easy. And God protect, yes, right, all right. We're all going like, what? You know, not my experience, right? No, we still experience the difficulties and the struggles in life. But what happens is suddenly now, those experiences now gain new meaning as followers of Jesus Christ. Those experiences become opportunities for us to grow. That's why they're called trials. That's why they're called tests. They become an opportunity for us to grow to get to, uh, to become more like Jesus, to grow in depth in our, in our love for others and our service for others and, and all of it just in so many different ways. So suddenly, because you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not shielded from these things, but suddenly they are opportunities for you. I mean, James says this, he tells them, he says, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result, that you would be perfect and complete. And if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all people wisdom generously and without reproach. He's telling him you're going to have difficult times in this life, whether you're a Christian or not, because he's dealing, some of these people are new Christians and he wants them to know this doesn't take away difficulty, but this makes difficulty become an opportunity. And so trials happen. They lead us to greater maturity. They lead us to greater endurance, to greater love, to greater sympathy. They show us how badly we need God. But we need wisdom. And not the wisdom of this world, but the wisdom that comes from God and the faith 
that is involved in that. In these previous verses, before we get to this passage, Paul, uh, James has been giving them examples of trusting God, of, of having uh, wisdom in plenty and in little. He talks about people who go both ways. So in this passage, I want you to see, first of all, I want you to see the temptation in trial. And that is this, let no one, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. God never tempts anyone to do evil, to do wrong. God says, I will never do that. That will never happen. Now, some of this, here we go, history. Yes, I love it. The ancient Eastern idea of a test or a trial is very important for us. We think of tests in our culture, right? You learn, you learn things, and then you go and you take a test, and you, and you answer it, you, answer, you get the answers. If you get enough right, you pass. You get, a, you get a, you know, like a C or a, a B or an A. You guys know how it works. Why am I saying that? Anyways, yeah, so, and, and that's this idea of what a test or a trial, in a sense, a trial can be in our culture. But in that culture, the idea wasn't, is it a pass or fail test? The idea was this, will you learn from the test? That's a, that's a key difference. You think about that. Will you do well or will you do poorly? And will you learn from it? Whether you do well or whether you do poorly, will you learn from this test? The purpose of the test, the purpose of a trial is to teach. No matter how you do it, the idea is that you will learn something from it. It's like this. Uh, I went not too long ago. Uh, I had to have some tests done, and so I had to go get blood drawn. So I had to go to a local place where they blah blah drud. Draw blood. Okay. And um, so I go in the nurse and we're just talking and, and she starts, emphasis on the word starts, sticking me and hunting. And oh, wow, it's really hard. She's doing this. It's really hard to find. And I'm starting to bleed and I'm just sitting there. And you know, Okay, this is a minor illustration. It doesn't hurt that much. You're just going, oh, ah, oh, jeez, oh, man, oh. And she goes, let's try the other arm. I'm like, oh. okay, one down, one to go. Right? And what I wanted to say was, did you get a C minus in drawing blood? Is that what you just barely passed so you know where the veins are? But see, that's not how nurses learn, is it? They don't watch a video on drawing blood and then take a test and they go, you're good, right? You answered all these questions right. No, what do they do? They do it over and over and over until they get good at it, except for that lady. That's just the only, that's just the only one. I'm not sure what happened. She hasn't, she hasn't learned the trial yet. And I was the trial. Okay, so, so do you want a nurse who has a C in shots? Or do you want a nurse who's given enough shots that she's good at it? When one of our daughters was getting ready for some major surgery, I asked the surgeon this. I said, how many times have you done this? How many times have you done this? And, and uh, he said, lots of times on 65-year-old smokers, but not on 16-year-old girls. This is a new one, but it's all the same. You know, I had an assurance that he, he knew where he was going. And he knew what things looked like and what needed to be done. 
In the Old Testament, in the wilderness wanderings, we have a great example of this. In Exodus 15, the children of Israel have wandered for three days. They're getting thirsty. They're looking for water. And they come upon a well. And the water in the well, the well's called Mara, which means bitter. The water in the well is bitter, right? And so now the people of Israel have two choices. Whenever you enter into a trial and it becomes, you get choices. Here's their two choices. First of all, they could say, okay, God, we still trust you. What do we do now? Or they could say, Moses, you idiot. Why'd you bring us to this well? The water's bitter. And so they chose. They said, Moses, you idiot. Why did you bring us here? And God tells Moses what to do. You remember, he throws a stick in there and the water turns pure. And that's where, um, honestly, I don't, I don't want to be too critical. Most commentaries stop there and say, well, there's the lesson. Trust God. But there's, they, the next two verses are so key. Because then what happens is, what happens is God speaks it well through, through Moses. Because here's the problem. They have one well. There might be 100,000 people, 200,000 people. Do you understand how difficult it is to draw enough water from one well for that many people? It's impossible. See, this isn't the end of the trial. This is the beginning. What are they going to do? Are they going to trust God? Or are they going to start? Because if they blame Moses, what are they saying? You're the man God put in charge. They're blaming God. So they're going to trust God or they can blame God. They decided to blame God, right? And then what happens is God tells them, he says, I'm doing this so that you will trust me. And then he says this, Here's, and then it says this, the very next verse. Then they came to Elam. Elam is just around the corner where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and they encamped there by the water. There were 12 pools of water springing up out of the ground, just around the corner, not far from Mara. Why? Because God said, look, learn from this trial. Okay, you blew it, and I'm giving you the reward anyways, in a sense. You blew it, and I'm going to bless you anyways. Now learn from it. Learn from it. That's incredible. That's incredible. The key point, Eastern idea of testing is it's not about the reward. It's about learning from the test or the trial. Now, this is kind of exciting when you think about we have a God like that. Because the point, then, is not to earn a reward. The point for us when we go through difficulties in life is to learn from it, to learn to trust God, to learn what the right thing to do is. In the New Testament, we get, in a sense, another side of this. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has now overruled the law of sin and death. And you can say, well, uh, Bob, I don't know. Sometimes, I had somebody say this, I really screwed up here. This is a big one. And I told him, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but this is a big one. Yep, there's no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Now, what, what, what can happen? Our, our human nature says, well, wow, then that means people just can just flunk, flunk, flunk. It's okay to flunk your, all your, but what happens is, and Paul talks about this, you don't want to. 
when you realize how loving and how incredible this is that God is doing for us, we start going, well, I want to serve him. I don't want to fail a test. I don't want to enter into temptation and sin. Even if I know for sure he'll forgive me, I, I don't want to do it because he's my Lord. He's my Savior. Look what he's done for me. I want, I want, I want to follow him and become more like him. That's what happens. That's what happens. See, the picture here is you learn from your trial, you learn from your failures, and you grow in grace. Now, doesn't mean there aren't consequences to failing a trial. It doesn't mean that. I have a friend who, a friend who in his college years, he, he, he really abused uh, drugs and alcohol, and the guy got a hold of him, and he, and he became a pastor, and he he started a huge church. It's a huge church, multi-site, mega church in Washington, D.C. And, um, and, and he, oftentimes we would be sitting talking, and he would say, I still struggle with what I've done to my brain with those drugs. I still struggle what I've done. See, the consequences aren't necessarily taken away. But he also could glory in the fact that his sin and his shame had been removed at the cross. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, earlier in James, the rich person, he talks to the rich person and the poor person. This is what he says. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. What is he saying? Those two things are both tests. They're both trials to be poor. He said, what, what can you do? You can give into it and you can become bitter and you can be consumed with envy and jealousy of others who have more than you, which in, and then the love of money becomes greed. Or, or you can do this. You can become compassionate and caring and focus on others rather than your own struggles. If you get rich or you are richer, you can become consumed with more. Look how much we can have. Look at all the good things I can get. Better house, better cars, better clothes, better food, more, 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 luxury, me. And then what happens? Luxury becomes need. Or you can do this. You can be far more generous and become an incredible example of being able to have but not needing to have. Both of those are a trial. Both of those are a test. It's interesting, I looked this up quite a few years ago, but it's, I think it's still pretty much true. A number of studies on charitable giving. And they said people who made under $25,000 tended to give about 4% of their income. People who made over $100,000 tended to give about 1%. What happens, the more you get, it becomes something you have to hold on to. That's the trial. So if you fall into poverty, it's a test, it's a trial. What will you do with it? God says you can become greater because of it. If you fall into riches, fall into riches. I'm not even sure how that happens. If you become rich, it is a test. God says, what are you going to do with it? And, and there's one of my favorite examples. I know I use this a lot, but the last test for the people of Israel as they were entering into the promised land, what did God tell them? He says, you're going to get into this promised land that I prepared for you. And there are going to be grapevines that were planted years ago that are going to become yours now. There are going to be fig trees that have had time to grow and mature, and now they're going to become yours. And you're going to reap the harvest of those things in this new land that you're in. And he said, and you're going to start to go, look what my hands have done. Look what I have done. God said, you're going to think it's all you. You're going to lose sight. It's a test. 
He said, this is a test. And it's interesting because in, as he talks to them about this, he says, this is a test you're going to fail. And you're going to fail it over and over and over. You're not going to learn the lesson. Because it's a hard one. When he says, you, these things are a gift for you, to you, for you to use to bless others. And it's true in all areas of life. If you, if you have, if you have uh, lost a close love or uh, there's been a heartbreak in your life, it can crush you and make you bitter or it, can, or it can teach you to lean on God and make you more compassionate. If you fall in love and you're in a great love relationship, you can be thankful and allow your relationship to, to reflect God or you can begin to worship that person and that leads ultimately to disappointment because you've made them something they cannot be. So in this passage, we're seeing God is not the author of temptation. He cannot be tempted, and he tempts no one. He allows trials. Sometimes he brings trials for your growth and maturity. And if you allow the trial to become a temptation, that's our choice, then you have corrupted the process, and it leads to point two, how sin works. And James says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Don't be deceived. Now, this is some brilliant imagery that he uses here. First, it focuses on the truth that I am responsible for the temptation in my life. I can be in a trial and I turn it into a temptation. That's what can happen. For instance, let's just say, I, I mean, you know, I'm a guy, guys, or it can, it can work both ways. But let's say you're having a difficult, a difficult, difficult situation with your wife, right? <laughs> Normally we call that a fight, but when you translate it into Christian, Christianese, you call it a difficult situation. We're going, through a, we're going through a difficult time when really what you want to say is, I hate her, you know, something like that, right? Not, not quite like that, but something like that, right? Okay, so you're in a trial now. What's happening? You're having a difficult situation. You're in a trial now, and this can happen in work relationships, in friendships, in family. It doesn't matter, but you're in a difficult situation now. And so you're in a trial. Now you're facing some choices. What does God want to teach you here? But it could be many things, but one of the deepest things that God wants to teach us in these things is, where do I look for my deepest needs? Now, you have three choices when you're in a difficult situation with your wife or with your husband. One choice is you can look to God. One choice is you can look to you. One choice is you can look to your wife. Well, you're in a difficult situation with your wife, so you're probably not going to look to her, right? That's probably not going to happen. So she's out. But you could do this. You can start praying, God, things suck right now. I'm so mad. And I think she's being unreasonable. Help me to be open to her point of view. Help me to be Jesus here and rest in your love. Help me to trust you right now. You can pray that. Why pray trust you? Because this is where you will fail miserably if you cannot trust God. Because if you don't believe God is able, then you start looking at you. That's the other choice, right? You start looking at you. And now trial has become a temptation. Because you're looking for the wrong thing. You're looking to meet your needs through you in this situation. And that's where things unravel so quickly. So maybe, you know, you've gone, you're going through this. It's not well resolved. And you start thinking, what am I going to do? 
What am I going to do? Now, sometimes it's not huge, right? We know we can do this, like kind of like the silent treatment, but it's not totally silent. It's just kind of a little dialed down. And if you have kids, what you do is you overreact. Hey, buddy. Hey, you guys are so great. Yeah, I find thanks. Right? And pretty soon, what happens? Your wife or your husband notices there's something off here. And is, is something wrong? No. Oh, why? What makes you think something's wrong? Huh. You know? And, and it just becomes this simmer. It becomes a struggle. Now, it could get worse. Maybe it comes more extreme and you do more extreme things. You know, you can t- turn to alcohol and drugs. You can turn to things where you go, I need to feel good. I want to feel good. Uh, oftentimes that's wh- why people turn to porn in situations like that, where you feel like I deserve something and I'm going to make her pay. I'm going to make him pay. That's where it can go. You're in a trial, a difficult situation. And if you say it's a about me, and you make it about you, then what happens? You have turned it into a temptation, and you are on a road. You are on a pathway that leads, ultimately, James says, that leads to death. Because if you do not believe God is able, then you start looking to you. And now sin comes into play. Understand this. You decide to turn a trial into a temptation. Every trial, that's the problem. It can just be a trial and I'm going to learn from this or it can become a temptation and I'm going to, I'm going to dive into sin. And James tells us in, in verse 12 earlier, he says, blessed is the one who preserve, perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James says, if you take a trial the right way, you, you go through it, you deal with it properly in a way that honors God. He says that leads to life. That leads to life. But we see here at the end of uh, verse 15, when you do it wrong, it brings forth death. You have two choices when you're in a trial. One way leads to life. One way leads to death. Now, in verse 14, he says each person is tempted. How? When lured, it says, and enticed. Lured. Does that sound familiar? Like fishing, and this is what he's talking about. A temptation. And the word, the word means it's a temptation that offers pleasure, but has a hook, has a consequence. The emphasis is, is focused there. Enticed is another word for bait. It focuses on the promise of pleasure. So what do we have? It's like a fishing illustration. We have a, po- a promise. It's like a fishing illustration. We have a promise of pleasure. But there's a hook that's involved. There's a hook that's involved. And that is the danger, right? One time um, I took my oldest son when he was little and, and, and my little nephew, we, we, we just went out to Lake Mari and, and, and we went fishing. And it's because I'm a great uncle and a great dad, but it's also because they didn't, they're so little, you don't have to pay for a fishing license from them. So it's cheap, cheap entertainment. Um, and so we caught some fish, you know, and we rowed back in and uh, the person who was in charge of the boats had said, stepped out, said, gone, be back in 20 minutes. You know, I said, okay, we got to wait, guys. And so, you know, I was thinking, I said, boys, you know, because this passage was, had been on my mind. I said, what do you think? What do you think the fish is thinking underwater when we drop our hook in? 
And, and my nephew, little Timmy, he's like, he gets all excited. He goes, the fish is going, ooh, that looks good. And then, right, by this fish, you know what happens. A lot of times, they knock it. They nibble. And your bobber's just, and I had to tell the boys, no, no, don't pull up yet. It's got to go under. They're just knocking it. And what does that mean? They're tasting it. So the fish is knocking it. And he goes, and the fish goes, that's delicious. And there doesn't seem to be any problem. And he looks at me, he goes, because he can't see the hook. And I'm like, that's exactly it. He's knocking it a few times. Sometimes we feel like we're getting, there's no consequences. It's because we're not hooked yet. But if we keep knocking it, if we keep nibbling, and James is trying to tell us something, it looks good, but you can't see the hook, and the hook is deadly. The hook means fish fillet, right? The hook is deadly. And he says, he says he, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Okay, we've talked about desire before. This is a word that is almost always in your Bible, will, at least most of the time, will be translated lust. And this is the word in Greek, epithumia, all right? Epi is epic, huge. Thumia literally means just a desire. So lust is not necessarily, although it can be used concerning sexual issues, but it also is this, it's this whole, it's an epic desire for something, a huge desire for something. It's the idea of a passionate longing. Whenever you see lust in your Bible, that's what it is. It's epithumia. I want this badly. It might even be a good thing. But I want it so bad, I will do whatever I need to do to get it. I want it so bad. It is not necessarily wanting a bad thing. It's wanting a thing badly. And that thing becomes something we put our trust in, something we take comfort from. It takes the place of God in some area of our life. We use it to fill what we think is an emptiness or a neediness in our life. See, that's the whole thing. You go through that difficult time with someone that you love and you get into an, and get into an argument and things aren't resolved and now there's a neediness there. And so you look for something else to fill it other than God. So we decide that something will benefit us in some way and we always forget there is a hook. Sometimes, you know, I have think of stories in my life that are funny to share, are fun to share. I think of some that are not so fun to share. And um, years ago, there was this sports car, many years ago, that I really wanted. And um, I went to a couple of um, mechanics that I knew and asked them, you know, about this, this car and and. Is it something, you know, am I going to just sink all my life savings into this car repairing it? Or do you think it's pretty, pretty, um, pretty economic to repair and own? And, uh, and these two mechanics said, this car is a money pit. Don't get it. And I said, hmm, do I know any other mechanics? <laughs> so I went to another mechanic. And he says, yeah, I've worked on some of these. They seem to be pretty reliable. And I was like, that's what I wanted to hear. That's what I wanted to hear right there. And we talked to my wife, and she, the loving wife that she is, said, you know, if you think God wants you to have this car, <laughs> darn, darn. Well, 
I'm thinking about it. I was like, yeah, it's probably, man. And I think about it, and I really wanted that car. And uh, at that time, my wife had surgery. So I'm sitting next to her in the bed. She's sitting in the bed. I'm, she's laying in the bed. I'm sitting next to her. I said, I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I really, and she just goes, it's okay. Get it. And I went and bought the car. Six months later, the engine blew. It was like two grand. The car only cost me 2,500. And I was like, God, I'm such an idiot. My wife tried to warn me. My mechanic friends tried to warn me. But I wanted it. And I realized I wanted it so bad I would do almost anything for it. And it became an incredibly stupid decision on my part. And that's what happens. He's saying here, he's telling us, he says, we, we're tempted, we're lured and enticed by our epithumia, our over-desire for something. And my over-desire was great handling, a big engine that was like 380, 400 horsepower that could go really fast. That was an epic desire for me. And I sacrificed for it. And I learned the lesson. I learned the lesson. I still like cars, but I've learned that I probably should stay away from them as much as possible. So I have a motorcycle. Okay, so <laughs> did I learn the lesson or not? Yeah, all right. So he says, this is what happens. You get lured. You get enticed. It, it becomes something, oh, I want it. I want it. And it looks good. It can be good. But there's a hook because it becomes an over-desire. And he says here, do not be Deceived. I love this word deceived. This word in the Greek means to leave the path. It means to wander. It means to go astray. Uh, years ago, my wife and I went to a, a park in, uh, in near New Orleans. Our kids were living there. And this is what the sign said at the entrance to the park. Warning, alligators and snakes. Don't leave the path. Now we went into this park and uh, we came upon a ranger, like a park ranger, and, and, and a lot of it was an elevated, you know, this high, elevated wooden walkway, you know how those things are. And he's standing at this place and he goes, that way, he says, I wanna tell you, there's a mother with her baby alligator right next to the path. Don't get off the path. Stay on the elevated walkway because the mother, anything on her level, will read that as a threat. And I was like, oh, man, maybe you know, it's a fork in the road. Which way will you go? I'm thinking, maybe just go that way where there's no... But we came to see alligators, right, in the wild. And I said, okay. And right behind us was a couple with their five-year-old son. And he stops, and the guy goes, I would pick up your son if I was you. And I'm just like are we in a safe place? Is this ranger leading us to our death? And we went, and there they were. Oh, they're so cute. Until they bite your leg off. Um, and what, what was the point? Don't leave the path. There is danger there. And if you can't comprehend the danger, we're telling you, don't leave the path. This is what God is saying to us. Imagine this. God is saying, don't leave the path. There are dangers that you can't even imagine that will destroy you and lead you to death, lead you to pain and suffering, will lead you to inflict pain and suffering on other people. Please 
Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren, my beloved sisters, <laughs> sisters, sisters. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. How do we deceive ourselves? Some, it's kind of obvious, but sometimes it's how we, we define, oh, you know, I didn't really, uh, we can rationalize our way rationalize our way around it. But I can rationalize any way I want of stepping off that, that little walkway. Oh, I dropped my glasses. Oh, I, I, could, I could rationalize anything. But if I got down there, now I'm in deep trouble. Now I'm in deep trouble because I got an alligator that's mad at me, right? So how do we fight this sin? How do we do this? Romans 8, 5, and 6 talks about this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on Spirit is life and peace. He's saying the battleground is your mind. Understand that. The battleground is your mind. We need to take steps to focus our mind on the words of life, which will change the way we think. That's how change happens in people's lives. Real change happens from the inside out. It doesn't happen from the outside in. We can dress somebody up. We can cut somebody's hair. We can make them look really nice. It doesn't change the way they are inside. And that's what needs to change. And he's saying that is what will change when we follow Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> excuse me, how God works. The temptation in the trial, we're going to have trials. We cause it to be a temptation. How does sin work? Sin works by looking good. It looks good, but there's a, there's a hook involved. And we may feel like we're getting away with it for a while, but the hook is still there and it's still ready. How does God work? Verse 16, because he's told them God doesn't tempt people. So how does he work? Okay, do not be deceived. I included that because it works good with this passage too. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Due to change of his will, no, of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He's saying, okay, so this is how God works. This is how God works. I don't want you to be deceived about this. Don't put something on God that's not there. God works in our life and it is good. It is good. He has no plans for evil for you. His plans are constructive, not destructive. Now, you have to understand, we read this, and it doesn't shock us. In the first century, this is shocking. Why? Because all of the gods are capricious. They're hard to understand. They're hard to trust. You cannot relate to them. They angered easily, and there was no thought there was no idea of a love for mankind. People lived in those days in fear of the gods. And dealing with the gods was avoided at all costs, if possible. And if you had to deal with a god, it was costly. It was very costly. Um, we know from some ancient documents, like at one point, someone had sold their farm. And what, well, what had happened was they had found, and a part of their farm, they had found minerals, valuable minerals. And so they were going to stop being a farmer and they were just going to start mining. That meant they had to change gods. And so we have this documentation of these people that went to this god and asked for help to know what, what should we do? Should we change? And it cost them a fortune because that it cost you a tremendous amount of money to deal personally with the gods and to get a personal answer was very expensive. 
And so this whole idea of every good gift, gift, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. There's no variation in him. There's no shifting shadow. He doesn't change positions. There's no change in him. It's always good. That's shocking to them. That would be something they had just never heard before. Right? So they lived in fear of the gods. And, and there's a great illustration of this in Acts 14. In Acts 14, Paul and Barnabas are on their missions trip, and they come to a town called Lystra. And they come in, and they start teaching, and, and, they, and they do something. And people are like, oh, the gods have come. The gods have come to visit. One is Zeus, you know, and the other, I forget the other was because he's a spokesman, did all the talking. And they assigned two gods to them. And Paul and Barnabas, when they realized, oh, they're worshiping us, they tore their clothes. They said, no, 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 we're not gods. We're just men like you. We're just men like you. And then the people said, oh, well, then we're going to stone you. What, what's going on there? Well, I can tell you what's going on. It's history. Ha <laughs> ha, surprise, right? There was, a, in Lystra, there was a, a, a town story that they all believed that many, many years ago, quite a few years ago, there was a huge earthquake and the town was decimated by this earthquake and it cost a tremendous amount of money to rebuild, you know, and Rome came in and helped them some and all this kind of stuff. And so what happened was they believed that what happened was the two gods came down to visit Lystra and the people treated them badly, not knowing they were gods. They asked for a place to stay, and the people said, no. You know, people said, get out of here, you bums. You know, we don't like, not like that. And they asked for food, and people said, no. And so Zeus, and I don't know if it was Hermia, I forget who it was, they cursed Lystra and caused an earthquake. And so those people, when Paul and Barnabas walked in, they're like, they're back. We have to treat them nice or they're going to curse us again. You see, their whole idea was that we fear them. So we have, to, we have to worship. We're going to honor them because we fear them. And Paul and Barnabas are like, no, you don't have to fear us. Oh, well, if we don't fear you, we're going to kill you. They said, we don't want to hear what you have to say. So that's how people thought of gods. That's how they thought. They feared them. It's bad news if God shows up any God. It's bad news. They're just like us, but they got supercharged powers. But they get angry, and, 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 and they cheat on each other, and they lie to each other. They're just like us. So keep them as far away as possible. So here, James is saying there is this God who is good, and he gives gifts, and there's no strings attached. That's hard. Hard for them to fathom. He has good plans, and not evil. James is emphasizing in the midst of trials that God is good. These people are in the midst of trials in their lives, and he's emphasizing to them that God is good. And what is the proof of his goodness? Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This is God's idea, not ours, that we should be kind, a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is his doing. His great love for us was his motivation for accomplishing our salvation. And his word is the means of power. It says, by the word of truth, his word is the power that did this. Understand, when you read your Bible, you really are dealing with power. 
you're dealing with power. The power that accomplished your salvation. Because God is in it. That is the reason. Not because the words themselves are powerful, but because God is in it. And they became the first fruits. In the Old Testament, the first portion of the harvest was given to God. And he's saying, we're the beginning. James is telling them, you guys, don't you understand? We're the beginning of something incredible. Something incredible. And he was right. Right? I mean, it swept the world. It turned the world upside down. I'm reading a couple of books right now um, that I'm really enjoying about um, what the world was like before Christ and how the world was different because of Christ. And, and a number of these historians and philosophers and different people that write some of these things, what they're saying is our world, the culture we're in in so many ways, so many of the good things in the culture, they came out of, out of Christianity. They came out of Christianity. This, this idea that, that, that God would love is, just seems crazy, would seem crazy to them back then. This whole, so many of these things, that people are worth something. You know, the whole idea of forgiveness from a biblical aspect started with Jesus. I mean, it started in the Old Testament, started with God, I guess I should say. But like this one guy was saying, for the Greeks, they had this idea of sympathy or anything, but, but you were only sympathetic to someone who had gotten themselves into trouble, maybe by happenstance, or maybe it was beyond their control. Say, oh, I feel so sad, I'll help you. But if somebody did something on purpose that was evil towards you, they'd be like, you, how could you forgive? That's a sign of weakness. And God says, no, it's a sign of strength. It's a sign of strength. Just the change that Christianity brought to this world is, is hard to imagine. And so James is telling the early believers, you're just the beginning of a mighty harvest, an incredible wave of people that love God and love their neighbors. So as we look at this passage, what, what do we take away now? First of all, I want you to see, just as we said, trials can become a temptation. It's our we decide how to respond and react. And we have been blessed because God wants us to be a blessing to others. He talks about the rich and the poor. And for most of us, you know, compared to the world, we're the rich. What else do we take away? Temptation. Our strength in temptation comes from the word and focusing on Christ. That is how we change our mind. That's how we change our mind is through the word and focusing on Christ. And things like even today as we sang, this is who I am. This is who God is. Understanding that gives us the strength through the power of the Holy Spirit to understand. Also understand this. In every situation, God wants what's best for you. So in your difficult situations, look for opportunities to grow. I know, I know, as we're here, um, all different people, all different difficult situations, some of you may be right now in an incredibly difficult situation. And it can seem flippant for me to, you know, trust God, you know, those kind of things. But I'm telling you, because Scripture tells you this, it's not because of me. I'm telling you, based on Scripture, God wants to do something in your difficult situation that could cause glory and praise and the furtherance of his kingdom that you may not be able to imagine and you may not ever see. You may not ever see. Remember we looked at Hannah just recently? And God, God's kind of, he's telling her, I'm going to do something great out of you. Did she see it? No. She didn't see it. But God promised it, and she banked on it, 
And she wrote a song praising him for what he was going to do through her and how awesome it was to be used by God. God wants to do things through you that you can't even imagine at times. And he wants to use your difficulties in ways that will affect people's lives for eternity. Man, that's a pretty, pretty cool thing. There are things you can do that will have an impact for eternity, not just this year or a couple years, but for eternity. That's a pretty powerful thing to be involved in. That's a great privilege for us as followers of Jesus Christ. It all starts with that moment of decision, accepting Christ as our Savior, yielding to him, understanding he died for us because we had sins that we should have died for, and he does that for us. And he rose from the dead to prove that he had the power over death, to prove that he had the victory. And we reap the benefits because he loves us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, that it gives us truths that we can base our life on. And so, Father, help us to do that for every one of us here, whatever the trials we may be in. God, help us to understand these trials, to understand the decisions we're making, whether to make them, uh, use them for your glory or to use them as a temptation to fulfill our own, our own desires. And God, as we learn from these things through the victories and through the failures, I pray that we'd become more and more like your son, Jesus, because your Holy Spirit is working in us. We trust you for that because you've said it is so. In Jesus' name, amen.